Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 115 with Derek Flansreich of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I am your host. And today you're in for an absolute treat. Uh, we've got a super successful entrepreneur. His name's Derek Flansreich and uh, he created a company called greatest.com. And I uh, actually um, have been following uh, the brand for a very, very long time and uh, was lucky enough to catch up with Derek in uh, NYC. Uh, it's, he was really, really cool to meet and uh, what's really impressive is what he's done with this company in the past five to six years. Uh, they now have 10 million monthly unique visitors and uh, he understands branding, he understands traffic and I know a lot of you guys are interested in content marketing and uh, Derek gives a ton of gold around their content strategy. Uh, he actually doesn't even really use SEO. Uh, he doesn't really game the Google uh, search or anything of the sort. Uh, and uh, he, as, as a media company, I have a lot of respect for what he's done. And it's always really humbling to speak to other you know media company founders and, and understanding what they're doing to grow and what that means and uh, you know I learn a ton from him uh, this is kind of my own little personal I guess uh, brain picking session uh, where maybe I might get the most out of this one uh, I hope you guys can get a ton too but uh, that's it from me guys if you are enjoying these episodes please do take the time to leave us a review uh, also, please do check out a crowdfunding 
project that we're working on. Uh, it's going to be a coffee table book. It's going to be amazingly designed with the best interviews uh, of the magazine and this podcast. Uh, if you go to foundermag.com forward slash book, so F-O-U-N-D-R-M-A-G.com forward slash book, you can sign up to find out when this project goes live. It'll be happening around November and I'd love your support. Awesome. All right, guys, I'll speak to you soon. Now let's jump into the show. So uh, the first question I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? Uh, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not totally sure uh, I call, I would call what I do today a job, um, more like a mission or a calling, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like when you're the boss, you know, it's it's less of a job per se, but maybe that's just because I've only had one experience of either, basically. I mean, I, I started Greatest because I grew up struggling my weight and felt like there wasn't a brand of business that I trusted and loved and felt like was really on my side. And that blew my mind. It made me mad and uh, upset and frustrated and angry that in a world where people were taking health so much exponentially more seriously, everything seemed to make me feel worse about myself instead of better. And every TV show I turned on, every magazine I opened, Every Google search that I did felt like, you know, it was telling me I should look a certain way and, and feel a certain way. And it didn't resonate with me. It felt like it was speaking an entirely different language. And so I became really obsessed with what if somebody could build a defining healthy living, you know, healthy living brand of business that actually made people feel better about themselves and actually like celebrate and empower them to improve. And instead of pretending like you're either a couch potato doesn't care or this perfect flawless athlete who, you know, it never messes up, that there's, there's a whole community and identity for people somewhere in between who are just trying to prove. So uh, i obsessed with sort of this mission and this vision and feeling like, um, you know, I, I feel blessed and grateful to be able to say that I believe this is my life mission to help the world think of health in a healthier way. I get to do that every day. And so uh, in many ways, the minute I sort of embraced that and realized that I had to start this. And uh, I was at the time working in another company that had announced uh, sold to um, a company called CBS. I worked with a company called Clicker, sold to CBS uh, for a very huge amount, you know, reportedly over $100 million. And I had no part in that. But it was a really important experience, sort of opened my eyes to the opportunity. And frankly, I think taught me a lot about what I could do to ideally build a company that's even more successful than that one. And so I sort of dropped every idea I had for any idea that wasn't something I'd be inspiring and have a vision around five years from when I started and uh, started building this, um, you know, what I hope will become the defining healthy living brand of business. And so I don't know if that answered your question at all, but that's, sort of my answer <laughs> yeah no it definitely does so um let's go back like um you told us about your why but but how did you start so so this company that you work for clicker was sold um so you essentially left the the company that was sold after it was sold yeah so i didn't i had really truly nothing to do with the business i like joined it as an employee uh right out of college and it was literally just like, you know, I was a, the kid who showed up and then the company was sold. 
you know, I wanted to start my own company and growing up, I had been, I've started stuff my whole life. Um, I started, you know, something in middle school and something in high school and something in college just stuck around. And when I left, they got bigger and better than, than when I was there. And I was so proud of that and felt like maybe this is what I was meant to do is build brands that impact communities and last, um, you know, long after I'm gone. And so that was, um, yeah, that was that was really, I think, uh, what prompted me. And then I believe I need to go have an experience somewhere so I could learn from others. And frankly, I think I learned sooner. I think I learned pretty quickly that you're never ready. And if you're never ready, then you know all this time spent getting ready is might not be worth worth the time. Um, and so, after six months of feeling like, oh my god, like no one really knows what they're doing. Uh, I definitely don't, but I care an awful lot about something, and that's really important. So um, you came up with the idea of greatness. Uh, exactly, um, how, how did you start it? To, to take us back, you know, you started with zero people reading every single day. That's ain't that the truth? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was a super nerd about this space. Um, I, you know, as I said, was struggled with my weight, uh, felt like I wasn't getting the answers that I wanted. And so I started reading all these PubMed studies. And uh, PubMed is the national, uh, here in the United States, it's the national repository for peer-reviewed scientific journals. So I started reading, like went straight to the source and started to learn a thing or two. And my friends started turning me for advice before I had really figured it out. And I was really struck by this. Why were they coming to me for advice when I barely knew what I was talking about and definitely didn't look like I knew what I was talking about, you know? Mm. But it turned out that the voice of the role of like a friend who was a little further along, as opposed to like a boring, you know, professor or or a, a sort of snake oil salesman or a boot camp instructor, like they were resonating with just their buddy and who talked about it in a way that was accessible and friendly. And so uh, that really stuck with me, this idea that the voice really matters and it's less maybe about the actual uh, what you're saying, but how you're saying it. And so when I set about to try to build the defining healthy living brand of business, like who knows how to do that? Um, I, I, from a very early sense, knew because I was so living in the space how little good content there was. So I think today, if you were to ask people, is there good health and wellness content? I frankly think people today would probably still say no, but it was even worse five years ago. It was really terrible, like really shitty. Yeah. And all the content that was out there, everything you landed on when you searched was done by a content farm. Really no one cared. So I felt like that was our way in. I also had some pretty good experience convincing writers to write for free. Uh, it's a skill I can no longer get away with. But in <laughs> in in college and in in uh, you know in schools, I had sort of gotten good at this. And I say gotten good at this because I realized that people who are creative, you know, often are not just looking for compensation. Which you know, if you can offer compensation, you should. But they're also looking for other things. They are looking for vision. They're looking for culture. They're looking to be a part of something. They're looking to do something different that hasn't been done before. They're looking to be inspired and, and to try new things. So anyway, what I did um, was I reached out to all my friends who I thought were great writers. 
and I made a list of the top 10 people that I'd ever worked with or had heard of, basically. <laughs> and I reached out to them and said, will you help? And then they recommended some people. I, I you know, posted about it to all this new cool thing called social media. And I started to develop like a group of people who were actually excited about writing quality content in this space for the first time. Like true science-backed, expert-approved content. Actually, since day one at Greatest, every fact has been cited by a scientific study from PubMed. Every article has been approved by multiple experts. Every article. So if it needs it, it's approved by experts, sometimes two, uh, you know, wow. at least two, sometimes like six. So really and high quality. So really high quality. But like I was saying before, it wasn't actually about what the quality of what we were doing, which we felt was going to be best in class or whatever, but it was actually the voice that really stuck out. Now was our, we believed our innovation. I think everyone should write science-backed expert-proof content. You know, it's embarrassing that people don't. Uh, but I think we uniquely write about content in a way that's honest and authentic. It's real. It's just like your friend who's a little further along. In the beginning, that was sort of my voice because I was editing everything. I threw up a blog, you know, I, you know, today I wouldn't call us a blog, but you know, when you reach 10 million people every single month, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you and have 35 plus employees, it's hard to call it a blog. But uh, in the early days, that's totally what it was. It was like a little blog with big ambitions. And I, I basically, you know, the, the intention behind it all was to scale through the voice and the tone and create an, you know, like I said, this identity for people. And so that we very quickly thought we would get notice of the fact that our content was actually high quality. But the most important part for us was, was that people would recognize and appreciate, like, and resonate with the voice. And that would drive them to share and that the social media thing had some legs and hopefully, you know, would, would help, help people spread this with their friends. And so, you know, frankly, we're pretty right. Uh, I, I emailed 100 people, um, the people who I thought were the, doing this right. Um, yes. Today, we, you'd probably call that like influencer marketing. Mm. But back then, uh, it was literally just me just like guessing at their emails and emailing them. And before Greatest Launch, I actually emailed uh, truly 100 people and asked them all for help. I'm trying to launch this thing. Will you help? And they, a surprising amount responded after, you know, a few, you know, one or two follow-ups, 70% of them had gotten back to me in some shape or form. Some of them I got on the phone with, some of them, you know, met me in person. And uh, almost all of them, when we launched Greatest publicly in April of 2011, shared it with their audience. And that oh, was wow. huge for us. That like put us on the map. Um, and so we were writing great content. We built a site that, look, I built the whole site myself. You know, it's like, was basically I could do most of it myself. Um, I think the only money we really paid for in the early days was a designer. And we, uh, yeah, you know, had a buddy help with some of the like tech, but this was not a complicated thing. It was something I really could do on my own. And I felt like the brand we were building was the real key and innovation. And I frankly think that today, even with you know, a full-time dev team, sales team, editorial team, design team, like everything we've got today, like I still think what we're building is a brand first. Mm, yeah, no, I think that's really important. Um, How did you come up with the name Greatest? I really like it. It's a great name. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, so uh, earlier I mentioned that there's like traditional media sort of depicted people 
as like either one way or the other and that there's not place in between. So greatest is my attempt to create a name and identity, uh, a group of people who are just trying to get better. And so like an artist works on art, a greatest works on being great, but they don't have to be the greatest all the time. So that was the idea behind it. That's why it's spelled with an IST. It's not a misspelling. It's on purpose. Uh, but yeah, I feel you there. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, mean, I know you. I know you do. You don't like your E's, and I don't either. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, talk to me around what happened next, because everyone would have aspirations to build a brand you know, build this, this massive audience, you know, you said 10 million monthly uniques, um, and you've done it in a reasonably short period of time. It's very, very impressive. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to, to catch up with you for a little bit, uh, when I was in NYC and I took a lot from our conversation and I'm, I'm really curious, you know, what happened next? What did this look like as time went on? Um, so, you know, you convinced, your best, like a lot of friends or the best writers you knew to write for free and you, you, you're bootstrapping. Yeah. So I'm bootstrapping. So this is the right, I mean, it's a good question to ask. I mean, frankly, most people don't ask this question. They're like, okay, great. And now you're, you're now you're huge and like, congrats. <laughs> um, so the next part of greatest was really hard. So we launched, there was some fanfare and frankly, we got some traffic. Yeah. And can the, we talk about much traffic? Uh, I want to say it was less than a hundred thousand unique visitors a month, but it sure seemed like a lot at the time. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's real traffic. Yeah. Yeah. Worth, yeah. Right. Like yeah, maybe yeah. 70,000 a month or something like that. Yeah. Hopefully I'm not making it up, but it was enough that it was like, Oh, this is, this is not decent. Yeah. a joke. Right. This is like, somebody's reading this more than my mom and my brother. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like at least one of them mm. clicking a lot of times. So that gave me some confidence and I decided the right thing to do was to double down on this. And I, the two of our top editors, Kate and David, were just about to graduate from college, right? So they were, they were seniors in college. They were just about to graduate in the Northeast. I was like, Hey guys, this is happening. We had, you know, we launched people love us. Uh, you know, it's just the very beginning, but will you, have a crazy summer with me and like commit to this. I know you have other jobs you could go do, but come, uh, come hang out and I will move to the Northeast. I'll, I'll move and live close to you guys. And I can't afford to pay you money, but I will pay for where we live. And I got an Airbnb, which existed, believe it or not, five yeah. and a half years ago. Yes. I got an Airbnb. I convinced this woman to lend us her penthouse. Like I, it's literally the nicest place I've ever lived in New York city in retrospect. I didn't even believe it, but convinced her to rent it out for us for a whole, basically the whole summer of 2011, um, just for nothing. I mean, like, wow. I can't, like, like we paid her, but like barely, like I pay more for my rent now for like a, you know, a, like a joke compared to that space. How but did you do that? She, I don't know. You know, it was like early in Airbnb. She wasn't going to live there anyway. Just, I got lucky. And yep. so I moved into this apartment with me and these two people, one of whom, one of whom I'd never met in person and the other one I didn't know that well. And they were the two most important people in, you know, greatest very early days. And they instantly hated each other and they worked extremely well together. And it was like, 
if somebody could have a reality show, they wouldn't believe how hilarious this summer was. Like, it's like, it's, they would have thought the whole thing was scripted. Like, it was a literal unreal thing. We all lived in the same place. We cooked dinner for each other every night. We, you know, fought and, and like, edited. And it was just, like, such an insane thing. And, you know, then we went right to bed and woke up the next morning and, and went at it again. Uh, and then as we were approaching the end of the summer, we acknowledged that no tra- traffic hadn't changed. Basically, traffic had plateaued. And this was really disappointing. And I remember sitting around a table and having the first of, so uh, there's this book, I think we may have talked about it when we met, but this book uh, by Ben Horowitz called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. great and, uh, book. It's a great book. And in it, he talks about, I think they're called the We're Fucked, It's Over conversations. Yes. And we've had many of them, but this was probably the, I mean, this was at least the first major one. <laughs> we sat around the table, we're like, we're fucked, it's over, guys. People aren't ready for this. Society doesn't need content. Like maybe society really isn't isn't prepared to accept that accomplishing and succeeding at health is more than just like a miracle pill or a shortcut. Maybe we're just not there as a people yet. Maybe people, this social media thing, uh, you know, maybe it's not really the answer. And us producing a very small quantity of content at a really high quality, maybe that's the wrong approach to take because what we really should be doing is spamming Google, which we refuse to do. And we sat around this table and slowly said, or, you know, maybe we just need to focus. Maybe we need to focus in on a demo at the time we thought we were going to be the health side for everyone. Mm -hmm. And maybe we need to double down on something that's starting to grow. And so that's what we did. We decided, looked around the table and said, let's focus on millennials since we're all millennials and we think we know them relatively well. And where are millennials? And all of us were recently had started using this small platform called Pinterest Mm. and we loved it. And we thought it was like this really exciting, interesting platform. And so we decided then and there that we were going to focus our demographic, you know, our target demo entirely on millennials and we were going to focus entirely on them on Pinterest. And we basically doubled down, I mean, really like over-invested in that, decided everything was gonna have a visual component, said we were gonna be the most innovative and and the biggest, most innovative people on this on this platform. And we picked the right platform, frankly. Picked the right platform and picked the right content for that platform because that took us from, you know, Pinterest took off in the end of 2011, it was like the hottest thing. And we were there for that ride. I mean, we were a part of that ride. We, we went from, I wanna say, you know, 100,000 or less unique visitors a month to like one, one million. And, you know, suddenly we were like yeah, off wow. to the races, uh, our real site, you know, one million like, and then over the next year or so that built it to something like two to three, uh, basically on almost all Pinterest traffic. Wow. And do you still get a lot of traffic from Pinterest now? We do, actually. Uh, today, Pinterest, you know, one point Pinterest made up something like, I want to say 60% of our traffic, you know, wow. uh, maybe 60, 70% of our traffic. And today it makes up uh, roughly 10, but, you know, 10, 10% of 10 million is, is no joke. It's, yeah. You know, like somewhere roughly around 1 million unique visitors a month. So wow. our traffic actually from there hasn't changed that much. <laughs> we still get roughly the same amount, 
despite the growth and saturation and all that stuff of the, of, of the platform itself. Yeah, wow, interesting. And I'm really curious, these people, because you're a solo founder, right? Yes, I am, for better or for worse. Mostly for worse, though. <laughs> yeah, it's tough, hey? It is so tough. Um, I it feel, is, yeah. I feel you there. So so talk to me, like, how come these guys didn't become your co-founders? Or, or what happened to these guys? Are they still with you right now? Yep, both are no longer with us, but both were here for two and a half, three years. So, you know, most, uh, you know, they were here for about as long as anyone has been besides me. Um, you know, in both cases, they were very focused on editorial. And, you know, they were extremely important in shaping what Greatest is today. Without them, Greatest wouldn't exist. And without them, Greatest would still sound like me and be a total idiot. Like, you know, they helped and were extremely crucial to it. But at, at these companies, as we've grown, you know, every three years or so, there's, there's a, like you, you kind of level up as an organization and you're looking for a different kind of person. And some people can make that leap to like the next level, but it's hard for other people. I think in both cases, in both of their cases, one for personal reasons and one for basically like other interest reasons, were drawn elsewhere. Mm. Um, they were drawn elsewhere because uh, they felt like this was their first job out of college. It was a crazy experience, but like, you know, that they were no longer leading the charge and involved day to day in the same ownership way. And so, you know, they, they found their way to other places. Um, you know, it's been an interesting thing. At Greatest, we actually take a very different approach to professional growth than you might think. Uh, I actually don't think, I think the likelihood that anyone at Greatest will be here 50 years from now is like tiny, maybe infinitesimal. Like who knows whether I'll be here in 50 years, like nothing, there's nothing I would want more than for me to be here 50 years from now, still building the business and it's still scaling in like new and exciting ways. And I am scaling in new and exciting ways. And there's nothing I'd love more than for every person at Greatest who's here to be constantly have the next step in their career perfectly placed and for our needs to, to exist as an organization for them to move into that role. The reality is that that's not the way this works. And in truth, most people, especially millennials, uh, and you know, we, our average age today is like 30, a little slightly over 30, but back then it was like 22, you know, yeah. uh, the millennials tend to be at jobs for two to three years. And so what we do at Greatest is we've been in, implemented this thing called Tours of Duty, and I, I won't go on and on about it, but the Tours of Duty framework basically is about like investing in professional development and actually upfront creating conversation around how long is this job going to be for until you're ready for the next job. And that next job ideally is with us, but it's okay if it's not. And we're going to have that conversation the whole time and support you fully, whatever, you know, wherever that ends up. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Um, so tell me what happened next, you know, Pinterest blew up. Um, is that when you guys raised your seed round? Yeah. I mean, basically uh, it's a really, really, we, we raise in an interesting way. The first three and a half uh, million dollars that we raised were all through very different tranches, small tranches, maybe five or six of them. And so I, we didn't definitively raise, if you put it all together, we call it our seed round, but they were all like semi seed rounds. Um, and so, you know, today that might be slightly more standard, frankly, like a three and a half million dollar seed round. 
but uh, back then it was sort of just enough money to sort of take us to the next level. And then uh, that we really didn't raise a true institutional round of capital until our A, it was announced in January. So we, uh, so we did a little uh, differently, I would say. Um, and the C, I would say like that was around the time in which we raised sort of what you would call friends and family, right? Yeah. We didn't need much, we just needed a little. And then uh, we continued to raise from then on, not from friends and family, but from like investors and angels and people we sort of met along the way. And uh, after that, we moved into a real office, a tiny one, where we used the you know bathroom sink, uh, the bathroom sink as like our kitchen area. It was like so disgusting. Um, <laughs> this tiny, tiny office that we loved, a fourth floor walk up. Then um, and we were there for a few years. And then by the end of that period, we plateaued again, ended up having to replace the entire editorial team. What happened? Um, this is another one of these we're fucked it's over conversations. Uh, we realized basically that we had trained people to, well, so the internet was changing. Mm. And what, so what year was this? This was like 20, well, 2013, yep. let's say. So the internet is changing. When we started out in 2011, it was basically good enough that we wrote content that didn't suck. Like the, the fact that we were writing great content in the right voice was enough. And we were like, wow, great content, go there. But as we approached 2013, frankly, other people were figuring things out and not writing total shit content, which is great news. I mean, we were thrilled about it. However, it meant that our differentiation was less clear. Um, and Pinterest, which was a huge benefit for us, started to pale in comparison to how well other people were doing on social channels like oh, Facebook and you know uh, other places. So our team, however, that we built had sort of frankly been like a little bit brainwashed, right? They most of them had come right out of college, and they were brainwashed into writing exactly terrifically well what we asked them to do which is thoughtful, quality-driven pieces without any real sense or ability for any social network besides Pinterest. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and frankly, Pinterest is different from other platforms in that it's not a social network. And they say this at Pinterest. Ben Silverman says a lot of Pinterest. Yes. Uh, it's not. Pinterest is the kind of thing that you can almost like add on to your content. You just have to really think about it. And the topics of the content you're writing have to be related to it. So it has to play a part of your strategy, but it's different than like you're writing for it. It, just, that, it wouldn't even make sense really for Pinterest. Mm. So our team, really terrific, amazing writers who are doing terrific work, couldn't quite make the leap. And I blame me, not them, right? Like I was the one who was leading the charge here. I was the one who couldn't convince them and train them and teach them to evolve into like a next generation version of a journalist. And so in an admission of my like failure, ended up having to let them go and replace them with people who actually already had this experience and had understood social media packaging and framing in a new way on top of being great writers and journalists. Mm. And so it was a particularly sad time uh, but thanks to the new team we hired, we went from something like two-ish million to five and then six. And we sort of 
reached this holy grail that I've heard of, of the 5 million unique visitor mark. And that was huge for us. That helped us like, you know, really pushed us over the edge, I think, and like saying, okay, this is a real thing. We're a real company. People can walk into any room and people take us seriously. And that move uh, is really important. And at the same time, we got, I don't want to say lucky, but by sort of a happy accident, we ended up starting to do very well in Google search. Ironically, we had set out to sort of be the anti-search play. We looked at what was in Google search and we said, this is the worst stuff ever. And we said, people are so sick of this. They're going to turn to places like Facebook and like Pinterest for their health and wellness information and inspiration, frankly, because like they'll trust it more coming from their friends. So we're going to be the best answer from their friends. And, and that was a good strategy, frankly, and better than I even thought. Because what happened is that Google, you know, we used to call it skate to where the puck is going. So sometimes say that today. But basically, like, we were like, what should Google be sharing? And then, you know what? Google caught up. And Google actually took our stuff that was now being shared on social media and was actually really terrific and started showing it really highly in results organically. And so today, half of our traffic comes from Google search, organic Google search. And we don't have like an SEO strategy. We just write great content. Yeah, um, wow. So and- you do no keyword research, no like link building, nothing? Okay, so I'm going to say we don't. But you are going to think I'm an idiot for saying that. But it's true. Yeah, wow. In some ways, we've sort of felt like we don't want to play with fire. Like, we're not dumb about the keywords. Like, we, you know, we know when something is trending that, like, that's a hot topic. So we'll write more content on it. But we're not, like, you know, we definitely don't do any active, like, link building. Though our content tends to be resource, evergreen resource driven and tends to get a lot of links. We write our content for sharing, which I think is a very strong signal, obviously, in Google. And we truly set out to write the best piece of content. And you know what? Like, good for Google. I genuinely believe greatest is the best answer on any topic you search for. And so if we've written about it. And so Google is algorithm, as it started to weed out the content farms and started to take down bad content, started to reward us better and better. Every time they do an algorithm change at Google, we end up, our traffic ends up growing. Yeah, wow. That's incredible. So, um Talk to me around volume of, of, of content. Uh, you told me that yeah. you put out four articles a day now. How, how has that kind of um, just just organically progressed? Uh, when you first started, how much were you putting out? Um, as time went on, you know, how you said that you had your first office, how much were you putting out? I'm really curious around volume and how you're managing it. Yeah, it's something like 20 a week now. It's like, depending on what you count the weekend, somewhere between four, three to five a day. Yeah, wow. Um, we're like very weird about this. I, like a pretty, I think, um, people don't believe me about this either. We genuinely won't produce content if we don't think it's great. And we don't play any games. So that, uh, we've had this quality over quantity angle for so long. And by the way, I think that's a big part of why we do so well in Google and a big part of why people... You know, if you click on an article on Greatest and then any other article you click on is great, it, it changes your relationship with the brand and adds to, you know, builds engagement, I think, that is very different from other places. 
And so, so anyway, we, we, we're like very adamant about this. We, by the way, we don't have a small editorial team. We've got like 10 people, mm. um, you know, so what are they doing all day? And the answer is they're writing great content and we don't push them or rush them in terms of like, you have a quota of content you need to put out. And if they don't put out great content, we fire them. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So no quota for your editorial team that don't have to produce two pieces a week, three pieces, there's no minimum, maximum? There's none. Uh, we have like general senses of how much each of our you know, categories is going to produce every week, but we're not like counting it. You know, we just have a general sense. Uh, we don't think quantity is a metric that matters. Just like I don't think increasingly uniques and page views is a metric that matters. All these things can be gained and are not inherently valuable on their own. Mm. If you're not trying to spam Google or spam Facebook, why are you writing 50 or 500 articles a day? Like literally why? Nobody needs that. Nobody can read that. Users don't appreciate that. So we sort of take what everyone is doing because that's what people do. And we, you, we basically like flip it and we ask why, you know, uh, and then we try to do things the right way. That doesn't mean we don't write content that is, you know, packaged and framed thoughtfully for Facebook. It doesn't mean in fact, we're starting recently to start writing some native, you know, native driven articles on Facebook, mm. uh, where it literally just lives on Facebook. You know, we're constantly experimenting with every one of these social platforms. We're, we're not like purists for the sake of purity. We're, we're, we don't not care about our content performing. Don't get me wrong. Our belief actually is just the opposite. It's that, it's that if you produce amazing content and you package it and frame it the right way, that it will heavily outperform you know, what everyone else is doing. And sometimes we say it's sort of like, you know, if you've got four to five shots on goal, better make them good ones. Mm-hmm. And we take really good shots. When it comes to your whole content play, I, I, that's really surprising because you, know, you guys do produce a lot of content. You know, 15 to 20 a week is a lot. Um, you do want to produce more content, but it has to be of an extremely high quality. Yeah, and I, I will say, you know, it's worth saying that in my world, right, in the world of like online publishers, most of them are producing 20 like an hour. 20 an hour. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, totally. Like most of our peers, people you would think or I sometimes think of as our peers, mm. you know, they're writing the New York Times worth a thousand. I mean, I'm not saying the New York Times, a peer of ours. The New York Times worth a thousand articles a day. Yeah, wow. That's crazy. You know, uh, Refinery29, Mike, Bustle, you know, all these companies that have raised a lot of money, but we think of as peers, right? In the sense mm. that they're like, you know, millennial focused, relatively new companies. They, uh, they produce something between, you know, 50 and 150 articles a day. Wow. That's crazy. So it's crazy. Yeah. So let's take it back. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it makes some sense. That's yeah. a lot of shots on goal. Yeah. So let's take it back. How can people, you know, early stage startups and, and founders getting started, how can they use what you know, what's, what's you know, to, to get started utilizing content and not, not you know, as a traffic play or, or as a, you know, a great way to connect with 
your like a prospective audience that you're going after to connect people up with your product or your service? Yeah. Okay. So I think a couple things. I think first, my first advice always is uh, a little exercise I call the Little John. Do you do you know that story about like Robin Hood? Yeah. Of course. Do you know who you know who Robin Hood is? All right. So um, I'm like a weird like fantasy person. So I like that bizarre stuff. Um, so anyway, so the little John exercise basically starts with you uh, with asking people first, who is their audience? And second, what do you want them to do? And people will often answer something like it's uh, women. And I want them to buy my necklace, right? Or buy them, let's say, buy my online course. Okay. Mm. And so then what we do with the little John is we first say, take who you think your audience is and make them as small as humanly possible. So this is the little part, like literally so small you feel uncomfortable. And if you come out with something like we are for suburban mothers between 35 and 40 with one to three kids who uh, are middle class and uh, love the movie, must love dogs, love rom-coms. They've got a dog. They've been thinking about getting a cat. They you know, think a lot about spending more money on the gym. Uh, they think they need to go back to the gym, but they never really show up there and on and on and on. You create this like really powerfully specific psychographic and demographic profile. Mm. And then you take the second thing that you're saying, this is the, what do you want your audience to do? And you broaden that as much as humanly possible is. Oh, you thought they were buying a course. Actually they're buying a new way to think about who they are in society and their place within it. Oh, you think they're buying a course? Actually, they're buying something that will give them the confidence they've been missing since graduating high school valedictorian. Oh, you think they're buying a course? They're actually learning to save so that they can go on the dream vacation they've always wanted. And so you you change sort of and broaden you know, it depends, of course, on what the course is, because that won't apply to every course. But basically, the little John takes what, you, what you're thinking and tries to narrow and specify your audience as much as possible, because I believe that if you're not really relevant to someone, you're not relevant enough to anyone. Mm. And, and takes whatever you're trying to accomplish, which is sort of that. And most people, what you want them to do, and most people answer that with, like, you know, what you're doing, and it takes you to the why. Right? So this is like Simon Sinek, start with why. I don't yeah. particularly, like I, I have mixed feelings about uh, Simon Sinek. And, but, but I think that the ultimate message of the why is really important, um, you know, translates in a really big way. So why do I say all that? The little John exercise, which I think is, um, I've been saying it that way now for maybe four or five years, uh, it's because then the answer becomes what kind of content do I create? What kind of product do I build? What do I tweet? And it just becomes so much easier. Mm. You're creating such powerful constraints around you know, who you're trying to reach and what you're trying to aspire them, inspire them to do 
that then you can kind of create a voice that resonates with them. You can speak to them where they're at, right? So, you know, that's a big part of, all right, well, then where are they? Where is this audience? Where's the audience and uh, that, you're, that you specify very, 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 in a very focused way? And uh, where are they looking for that message overall that you've decided you're bringing them? And, and so that's, that's literally how I approach, that's what I would, I would call this, you know, step one to sort of like marketing, uh, much less content marketing. But I think, I think that's, you know, what we've done, I think, really well, maybe the only things we've done really great. And look, I think we've done a lot of things very well. I think we've done a lot of things poorly. Like no one's more critical, hypercritical than I am about like what we can improve on. But we have done one thing really well. And that is over time, increasingly narrowed who our audience target was and increasingly gotten better at communicating like what the mission is and what community, what identity, what ultimately like is our approach to what they're taking on. Mm, awesome. That was gold, man. All right. So look, we have to work towards wrapping up. Um, I'd love to talk to you about the business model um, of, of, a, of a media company. And this is something that a lot of people, you know, say, you know, you can't make money, all these kinds of things. Publishing's dead, all these kinds of things, you know, at Founder, we're, you know, we're profitable, we, we're, you know, we're bootstrapped and, and we're growing definitely not as fast as you guys, but I'm really curious around your thoughts and, and what's next for greatest um, and, and how you, you, you plan to, to weave in, in your business model. Yeah. So it's obviously an important question. Making money is, is, uh, apparently important. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we struggled with this in the early days. Basically, my bet in the first three-ish years of Greatest was that we weren't going to make any money and that I needed to find an alternative way to fund it. Uh, and part of that was keeping things really, really fucking cheap. Mm. And, you know, this like classic kind of bootstrapping mentality. You know, we didn't bootstrap. We raised three and a half million in the yeah. first like three, four years. So, but, but we really didn't raise that much nor spend that much. You know, if you really think about it, for three and a half million over four and a half years is not very much money um, for, I mean, it's a lot of money in general, but it's a small amount of money for a startup. Yeah. And the reason for that was because I believed in the early days, there was no way for us to monetize the site without compromising on our values, integrity, and long-term brand value. So everything at greatest is long-term brand value first, yes. everything. We refuse to take any short-term compromises um, at the cost of long-term, like, you know, brand trust erosion. And this is really hard. Like, yeah, we would all probably agree in general that seems like it makes sense. But when I got an e-cig company emailing me saying, we'll write you whatever you want, like whatever money you want, we'll send it to you if you advertise us. Um, you know, you sit there and you're like, well, I mean, they're b-sigs you know you like you sit there and wonder and it's a hard big big challenge you know for me not the least of which my whole team right mm. and so i i will say that um i think part of this like we're going to do things right allowed us for three years to like sort of breathe a big sigh of relief and then we spent about a year trying to figure out how to monetize and frankly did it relatively poorly 
I made mistakes around the people that I hired to help me accomplish it. You know, we probably set out too early or set out the wrong way. But then around last year, you know, early last year, so over the last, let's say, year and a half, we started to kind of figure it out. And with the help of people who actually knew what they were doing, we started to sell what we call brand partnerships. So mm-hmm. basically, it's a fancy form of advertising. I think I'd be lying if I said it wasn't that. But it is better than that, or at least it's like kind of what advertising should be. We work with a very small select group of brands, brands that we know our audience will love and resonate with. We help them come up with a campaign and a campaign that you know usually involves quite a bit of content, but isn't just content, right? Yeah. It's, it's content driven, but it can include events and uh, you know social media and newsletter promotion and can include display ads, which we try to avoid. It can, it can involve videos. Like it can involve a lot of different things, but it's really, we act sort of like a mini ad agency creating a campaign that we know will activate and engage millennials best. You know, our pitch is like, look, we know 23-year-olds who are trying to get healthier better than anyone on the planet. And I believe that to be true. And then we say, oh, by the way, we've also got the largest audience and the fastest growing of them across all these platforms too. And so this, that becomes much more compelling when you've got five, you know, now 10 million unique visitors a month. And it's especially compelling when you have salespeople who actually know what they're doing. And so that's been, um, you know, over the last year and a half, last year where we were profitable, uh, mostly profitable for most of the year, we, this year we are not profitable, but we should be getting back to not too far from there this year. And then next year we should be profitable again. Um, and, you know, we're now making a not insignificant amount of money. I mean, we're a big, big business with 40 full-time people. So you can kind of do the math. I mean, we are, we would never have grown if we didn't believe that we can get back to profitability. And that's really important to me as a mission, uh, heart-driven founder is to retain control. And, uh, you, know, you know, I think it's really hard if you're a media company uh, it's almost easy to end up spinning out of control and then your options really dry up. Mm. Have you, do you guys do many events? We don't really. Uh, it's something we know a lot of media companies monetize quite well off of, but we, because we're a national blog, we're a national site, right? I mean, really international. Uh, we have a million unique visitors in the UK. I think we have something like 300, 400,000 unique visitors a month in, in Australia, which mm. I believe is like all of Australia. Uh, <laughs> Come on. I just, yeah, I'm just kidding. Uh, and, uh, but it's a pretty big audience. Yeah. <laughs> but, but ultimately we are a, in the, you know, ultimately we're like English speaking, but really US based yeah. and, and the, the national site. The problem with the national site thing is that that means we're all in New York City. And so it actually tends to be hard for us to just rally New York City people. And we find that our core audience, remember, which are really 20 and 30 year olds who are just trying to get better, who haven't figured it all out. We tend to find that they don't love when we do things in New York. That's not like they don't like it or don't want to be involved. It's just that they feel like it's a little out of touch. They feel like it's um, different from their lives. So we've been very sort of I would say, uh, thoughtful about our approach there. But yeah, we've done events and, you know, we're going to be doing lots more events. But the way we want to do events is across the country, you know, and do them like in a big, big scale. Mm. And have you guys considered building some software or having uh, some sort of 
maybe not necessarily a gym membership, but some sort of recurring model or continuity uh, for like premium content, like more premium content than what you're already producing. Oh, what an interesting idea. Uh, sounds an awful lot like a business I've heard of called Founder. No, um, <laughs> so, so we will not charge for content. Uh, we tend to believe that this is like service journalism and that everybody should have access to science-backed, expert-approved health and wellness content that's actually fun to read and non-judgmental and actionable and empowering. So it's that's like a you know it's a mission part of our business. Yeah, uh, we wouldn't charge for that. But absolutely, uh, the long-term vision for Greatest has never been to be a media company. We believe media is the stepping stone to ultimately unlocking the value of our audience. And we ask a lot: what is the monthly service or subscription that people in our audience want to spend on that will actually help them get healthier? And if I knew what the answer to that was, I would just tell you because we'd be building it and it'd be very exciting. <laughs> but we're, we're not there yet. However, it is what we've sort of built the business, uh, what I've always envisioned the business becoming. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the early days, uh, of, I mean, even today, we talk a lot about like, you know, what we're building is basically like the Weight Watchers of the future, not the online publisher that's you know, of the future. So uh, that, and, and, you know, that vision is, is, uh, I would say it's a vision that has been very clear in the sense that we know we want to get there, but uh, very unclear in terms of what it might actually look like. And so, you know, I have to also tend to think of businesses as, you know, you sort of build them step by step. Yeah. And uh, we are at probably like somewhere between step three and four gotcha. of like a, unlimited amount of steps but it's a very big ladder or something i don't know mm. okay awesome so look um we'll we'll wrap uh work towards wrapping there derek but just um final words anything you'd like to say and also where's the best place people can find uh you and greatest final things i would say what is that uh you know i've got this naive belief that to if you find things that are good for you that you actually enjoy doing you keep doing them it's very simple but i believe that to be the secret if there's any secret to long-term health success it is about not what you're doing but why you're doing it it's not about being healthy but about having a healthy attitude because the mindset is what's going to keep you going and keep you committed if you think health and wellness is something that's gross or you don't like, you're probably just doing the wrong things. And I encourage you to go seek out others. In terms of where you can find more information on that, uh, it would be at greatest.com, spelled with an I-S-T, or also on every social channel uh, you could possibly imagine. And we're very easily accessible because it's just literally spelled that way everywhere. Uh, and I am also relatively easily accessible I do some tweeting and I am T-H-E Derek uh, on Twitter, the Derek. Awesome. Well, look, uh, thank you so much for your time, Derek. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for your time. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business. 
which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.